a listener production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. In the world of food, you all know we'll travel for something special. So if you haven't been to Maker & Munger at the Paran Market, then maybe it's about time you did, regardless of where you live in Australia. Anthony Femier is fast-gathering a reputation and is a certified cheese connoisseur. And his maturing room is called The Chapel. Does it give you some insight into where we're coming from? Packed full of some of the best cheeses from here and abroad. As much as his shop is famous for the cheese, it's also as famous, if not more, for the toasties. The line is certainly constant, and a trip to the market would not be the same without a gooey fondue special or a grilled American. Have I got your attention? But here's the disclaimer. This is a foodie chat, and it's a cheese chat where we dive deep into the ins and outs of all things cheese. So if you don't love cheese, then maybe this is not the episode for you. But if you do, then strap in and feel the cheese. Tell us about Maker and Munger and how it all came about. Yeah, so Maker and Munger started September 2015. Previously before that, I was at Spring Street Grocer. I helped set up and develop the underground cheese cellar, the gelato bar and the grocer with um, Con Christopoulos and his business partners. And it was an incredible and exhaustive experience um, for a good sort of four Four and a half years, I think. Yeah. And um, can we talk about that? We yeah. try to kind of pause and dig in a little bit. So, yeah. how did you find yourself doing that? It was a very funny story. I had um, I had spent a year out of work. Uh, had a, had a uh, lumbar laminectomy and dissectomy on my L four disc. What what the hell is and, that? And uh, basically, your disc uh, pops out of its little um, sort of capsule in your spine there and right. into the nerve canal and. Um, it happened when I was on my way back from New York. I'd competed at a uh, World Cheesemonger Championships over there in 2011 and came uh, a 10th out of 40. Um, my dessert cheese, which was chocolate, was supposed to be layered chocolate biscuits with uh, gorgonzola foam and cognac sort of jelly. It had split. I had put everything in the siphon at the start of the competition. By the end of it, I made that mistake of right. went into spray it out and then it came out like a liquid. So. <laughs> <laughs> so this is like a little stack, yeah. and then you. This is almost representative of the lumber problem you found yeah. yourself with. So instead, instead of chocolate biscuits, of- <laughs> biscuits and gorgonzola, we've got what yeah. soft paddy tissue and bone. Exactly. So I went from second to tenth. It was a really yeah. nice learning experience. But then I packed my suitcase full of New York slate. It's this beautiful red um, slate, and I wanted to sell that at my shop at right. Richmond Hill at the time. And, so I packed my suitcase and it was a bit too heavy. And lifting that through the subway, etc., just happened to tingle my disc and getting back to work and lifting heavy cheeses on the wall as we were maturing them on the uh, the, uh, the wooden slates there at Richmond Hill. Just one day the the back gave way and um, progressively. Was it, partic- was it a particular cheese, Anthony? Yeah, Parmesan. Uh, Parmesan. What does a Parmesan weigh, just out of curiosity? Average between 35 and 45 kilos. And you're lifting those babies up onto the yeah, maturing and shelves? Yeah, with how their diameter and how awkward they are and being coated in oil, they're slippery too. So you need long arms, not just strength to flip See, this is, for me, this is like the foodie version of world's strongest man. Have you seen it when they lift up an awkward yeah. rock? Yeah. It's not a barbell. No. So lifting up a parmesan is a yeah. obviously a slippery sucker and a, and a difficult shape to get around. Exactly, right? exactly. So <laughs> ended up yeah, having a nightmare. Sorry, I have to stop you. Reggiano yeah. or? Padano. Yeah, Reggiano. Oh, at least you did it on. So you yeah. did it on the good stuff. You yeah. popped a disc yeah. on a good 
wheel of palms out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a regrettable experience because it was a year a year of hell. It was a successful surgery, but a couple of days later at home, I fell down the stairs because uh, I had my surgery socks on and it was very polished floorboards there in Abbotsford and and then ended up spending another a year as a result with um, very bad nerve reactions and sciatic pain. So, so it knocked you about a bit. What, what was your mindset during this period uh, of recovery? Yeah, the, the thought process was very dark. Um, what saved me was applying for a, a Churchill Fellowship, Right. Uh, going through that application process. And, and explain and, that because that's a fellowship that uh, grants, isn't it, people with merit yeah. to study overseas? Or, yeah, so yeah. when you can no longer learn what you're studying uh, or mm. what you're doing as a job or career here internally in Australia and you, you need to go overseas to better yourself, better your industry and better society as a whole through your yeah. learnings, you can apply for it. And um, I did that and... It's a four-stage process. So you go through two stages of interviews with some incredibly fascinating people and then you have the, a written uh, interview and then one final interview in a, um, a secret location where they take you through uh, the VA double C uh, building on St Kilda Road. There's a, um, a secret floor and you go through a wall which has like a photo frame that opens up and it's very James Bond-like and just these captains of these industries sit at this U-shaped table and you have 10 minutes to tell them your story. Yeah, that sounds it's, terrifying. It's intense. And um, <laughs> like the current governor general, uh, Linda Dessau, she was the head of the, the U-shaped table. So I took in some Comte uh, cheese, not to bribe them, but to ah, show that's them. That's bribery, Anthony. I'm uh, telling you now. <laughs> <laughs> Just to show them what we could potentially be doing here in our country if we because uh, I had applied for cheese maturation. Um, right. And uh, so cheese maturation and bettering a uh, cheese industry here. So it was incredible. We, I was the only food uh, winner that year. Um, and it was so funny um, as the governor was announcing each of the awards, he was saying, you know, my personal favourite is someone's going overseas to study about cheese and my mum in the back of the government house, all you could hear was, oh, that's my son. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, if I could draw any more attention to myself, that was the perfect, that was the moment. perfect moment. So, Fantastic. Um, and so that's what got me through that that year of not being able to work. And and as a result, I got talking with my friend who had ran that that New York cheese competition, the, the Cheesemonger Invitational. And he mentioned he had a job for me in Brooklyn doing a uh, cheese shop and I was very keen to do that and I um, organized my flights and logistics um, once I could walk again and um, had my farewell at the European restaurant with Richard Thomas and a, another guy named Laurie Gutteridge who was looking after the cheese at Innocent Bystander in New okay. uh, Yarra Valley. He had built a cheese room there. And, and um, Richard Thomas being like the godfather of Australian yeah, cheese, just yeah. for people who don't know. Yeah, and it was so <laughs> funny. We, um, we BYO'd our own cheese in an esky. Uh, we all had been mucking around with a new cheese in, in Yarra Valley and we all washed it our own way and Richard wanted us all to taste it. And so there we were sitting at the front of the European and the restaurant manager at the time, Julian, I think his name was, he came out, got very angry with us and tried to kick us out. And, oh. and Richard was like, oh, do you know who I am? And, uh, you know, I worked uh, longer in this industry before he, like yeah. Richard does when he's had a little bit too much drink and <laughs> a little kerfuffle started and uh, he went inside with Julian and... Uh, out came this gentleman uh, by the name of Connor I'd never met in my life, never knew about. Uh, he had a bottle of burgundy and a cheese platter in his hand and he sat it down with us and he said, look, um, you know, Richard's told us uh, who you two are, Laurie and myself. And he said, oh, next to the wine shop there, I've just taken on a lease of that building. I want to build kitchens in the back, but I don't want it to be a 7-Eleven in the front. And 
it's a blank canvas. And Richard tells me one of you are really good at setting up cheese shops. And Laurie had ruled himself out because he was starting a family there in the country and he wanted to stay there in Yarra Valley. And I said, oh, well, I'm moving to Brooklyn next week, so I can't help you. And <laughs> Con that would have made you even more appealing. He's going, yeah. all right, this guy must be good. He's going to Brooklyn. Yeah, so Con, being the charmer that he is, just basically said, all right, I'll see you tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. Um, and I was like, I can't. I'm getting ready for my trip. And he said, no, I'll see you tomorrow at 7 a.m. And um, I was curious. I wanted to see what this guy wanted uh, to do there. And he took me on a tour of the building and and wine and dined me that whole day um, through the Siglo Supper Club and City Wine Shop. And oh, what a charmer. Yeah. That then, was the equivalent of what you did. Yeah. That U-shaped table with the Comte. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so, He's got you. Uh, you know, he paid for my uh, cancellation of my flight to Brooklyn and I signed the contract the very next day and I began working with the uh, architect and uh, builders on the design of the, the shop. Can I, can I ask you, can I just rewind a bit? Yeah. Obviously, you, you, now you're put in a position where you're going to be opening up a, you know, a cheese room. Yeah. Your experience to that point, how did you, how did you get to a point where you're qualified or able to do that? You mentioned uh, Richmond Hill. Yeah, yeah. So, so when we rewind your career, yeah. wh where did the love of cheese come from? The love of cheese came from mum. Her, her love language is basically bringing the family to the table. So every night was a different meal. Her favourites were definitely Gabrielle Gateau and um, Karen Martini. Right. Uh, with a sprinkling of traditional um, home recipes from Calabria <laughs> and Italy. Um, yeah. And I used to love watching her work. She worked in a, um, a food store. When my brother and I turned 18, she was able to go back to work. Um, she, she sacrificed many years of her life for raising her children. And, and at that stage, we needed a weekend work as well. So uh, working alongside my mum at the counter, I absolutely loved customer reactions to her stories about food and, and recipes and putting flavours together and it was remarkable, the people coming back the next day saying, you know, this simple thing was such a life changer, yet we were eating that every day at home. And, right. and I loved it. I loved the, the satisfaction, the, the education of it as well. And, and every day was a, a great day to just listen to stories that we'd, we'd had every was day. Was this a, in, in opposition to what you probably thought you were going to do? Yeah. Like at, at school, did you think I'm going to be an engineer, firefighter? No, or a, I wanted to be or a politician. many things, including a stockbroker. And that was ah, the, the last see? of it. That was dad ah. sitting me down and saying, hey, you know, your grandparents sacrificed a lot in the 60s to come over here. Like, for, my, for example, my grandfather sent my grandma and my dad over when my dad was five and it took him another five years to afford to fly, uh, to um, sail over here himself. So... They had gone through a lot and they had set up a, a fruit and vegetable shop in Gladesville that, that hadn't worked either. Um, so there was a lot of hesitancy from dad for me to enter the food industry. He wanted me to do finance like, like he was doing. And yeah. so I'd graduated from school and, and got into applied finance at Macquarie University and and worked with mum on the weekends while studying. And, <laughs> and I got kicked out of a class once because our lecturer, his name was Egon and he did look like Egon from Ghostbusters. And I made that comment and well he didn't done, appreciate Anthony. that. And yep. he, he sent me out and that was it for me. I was like, you know what? I, I don't belong here. So I, I graduated and uh, took myself on a trip to Italy with my mates. We first did the Greek islands, of course, and then the boys went back home and I I kept going through Italy with my best friend, Dan. We did the Slow Food Cheese Festival that's held every two yeah, years which in Bra. Incredible. Yeah. I've never been. It's been, it's been on it's the list. That's absolutely amazing. I think Hold last time out. I spoke to you about it, I think yeah. when, well, gee, with COVID, I can't remember when I went overseas last, but yeah. I was like, I wonder if I could detour. Yeah. The, it's the third weekend of, of the 2nd September uh, or every 2nd <laughs> September and um, it's incredible. The whole town of Bra just becomes cheese and you, you can either stay in Piemonte or stay in Barolo which is another picturesque town and you just make your way every day for four days and you just consume as much cheese as you can. You 
You can sit on some incredible um, education courses with some amazing uh, heads of our industry, and and I did that as a young kid. And um, what does that cheese festival look like? I mean, just I'm just trying to picture it now. I mean, yeah. how many thousands of people go? Do you know, uh, it's many thousands. Two years ago, it was over two hundred thousand people over four days. My goodness! So get in early. Like if you do go, you need to go first thing in the morning. And every cheese on the planet, from New World to Yes, Traditional? every every cheese. Um, basically, uh, uh, two years ago, the theme was all raw milk, which was remarkable uh, because it was some incredible things from um, yak milk in um, in Tibet. And yeah. it, was, it was like, wow. <laughs> yeah. like, I knew they made candles. I didn't know they made actual cheese. And yeah. I was actually given, I know this, I'm distracting you, but I'll, I'll hold your thought for yeah. you. But when I was in India once, this guy who was actually a, I think I might have told you, he was a cheese development consultant. That's right. Yeah. And they were up in the north of India trying to um, teach farmers how to preserve milk in different ways because that's yeah. obviously where cheese came from, how yeah. to preserve a product that degrades very quickly. Yeah. And he handed me a bottle of yak milk ghee yeah. and he goes, you have never tasted anything like it. <laughs> And I was like, I was a bit hesitant. And he goes, and by the way, this was like the only yak for hundreds of miles. So, yeah, and it was incredible. And I thought, gee, I'm quite lucky. I'm probably one of the few people on the planet to eat yak milk ghee. Yeah. Who cares, everyone yeah. shouts. But <laughs> but for a, for a cheese nut, for people that love food, this is the thing that makes a, floats our boat. Yeah, right? it's such a curious product. Um, and then there's, of course, camel milk and, and then deer milk. I remember there was an article a few years ago with Djokovic, he was investing in a, a deer farm there in Serbia. <laughs> I don't know what he's doing now because he's vegan, but um, yeah, that was an interesting thing back then. So the Slowed Food Festival, it sort of ignited a, a spark in me that I wanted to do something in food. At first, I thought it was going to be an all-encompassing food shop like the traditional Italian delis up there in mm. Sydney, but this cheese festival really made me focus <coughs> on on cheese. So after, what was it? What was the moment, Anthony? You know, wandering around the stalls or going yeah, to a lecture or having eating a particular cheese. Eating a particular cheese, which was um, fresh, it's like squaccaroni, which is a essentially a fresh curd that's just been scooped uh, out of the vat and into a little um, container. So it's just pure, I guess, fromage blanc in, in terms of a French. And having that with proper um, mortadella from Bologna mm. and just those two things, so simple with a fresh olive oil from Tuscany, so it had that peppery kick to it and a little bit of salt from Sicily and all four of those flavours, like, wow. I was like, wow, that's that's incredible. Why don't oh, we man. do You know that? the hairs so, just stood up on the back of my yeah. head. Yeah, and, and then just a crusty loaf of bread next to that and I had that for breakfast and lunch on the one day uh, and then that night had dinner. It was um, It's a traditional dish of bra um, in Italy there where it's raw sausage uh, with butter and sage and this style of uh, pasta that they have. I can't remember the name of it and... I was like, you know what, this is it. This is what I want to yeah. do. And um, Proper kind of ingredient-based yeah. love of food. So I got a phone card and I uh, <laughs> rang mum and dad and, and told them uh, that's what I want to do with my life and, and mum was very happy with it and dad, you could hear him swearing in the, in the background <laughs> and how much more money do you need to get home and that was, uh, you know, I need an extra grand to help me get through uh, the next couple of weeks. I went to Modena and worked at a, uh, a Parmesan factory there, which was fascinating um, that everything was, you know, being operated via a button uh, here and there, but the maturation of the cheese was still very much hands-on of flipping the cheeses themselves. But you end up then in, in the cheese business? Yeah, yeah. So I got back home after working in Modena and um, I saw in the job ads there was a, a shop called The Cheese Room in Alexandria yeah. and they were looking for a, a cheesemonger. And I, I applied for that and I got the job and, um, and took two buses every day to get there and 
enjoyed myself for about a month uh, before I got fired. And uh, What, for not knowing enough? Uh, not knowing the difference between two cheeses, two Pyrenees cheeses. No, not Brie and Bloody Camembert, <laughs> but um, uh, White of Valet and Capronel. They're two semi-hard Tom cheeses. One's a sheep and goat, one's a goat, and they look exactly the same when you peel the label That's off. a fireable offence. And it was. Uh, I mean, the real reason I got fired was I developed a hernia. Lifting this, cheese, of course. This back, seriously. And um, but they they covered their, themselves with that um, uh, that, and we ended up going to court for unfair dismissal. And I won, and uh, he also had to go to jail for fraud and and close his business. So right. Uh, that so, was a very... so don't pick on the guy with a bad back <laughs> in the workplace. That's it. That's how it works. But it ignited a fire because when I got home, my dad said, "You know, I told you so. This this industry is not for you. It's mm. you know breaking you down." I had to stop my soccer career as well as a result, but. It, it gave me a fire within to keep pursuing working in cheese and I wanted to make it a success because I loved what mum was doing. I loved our cousins and what they had. They had a shop called um, Five Star Gourmet there mm. in, in Crow's Nest. It was it was a shop that preceded um, David Jones Food Hall as that all-encompassing food shop with quality. And yeah. I wanted to follow in, in mum's footsteps. So. The next job I got after the hernia was healed was at Simon Johnson in Castle Crag and back then it was just a remarkable talent yeah. pool who was working there like Belinda Jeffrey's sister, Kaz Stokes. Uh, she right. was a food stylist and photographer. Okay. There was another lady there who was also working for Lorraine God's Market, um, Yellow Bistro. Well, Other. Simon Johnson attracted at the time, you know, yeah. purveyor of, you know, fine foods was yeah. at the top of the heap, right? And yeah. the shops were kind of the first high street versions, if you like, of you know, those, you know, dark and dank cheese rooms that exactly. maybe you described before, or the delis, right? Exactly. And so it was just a who's who of, of food and, and you'd just be talking food all day. And yeah. like we had P Peter Gilmore coming in every week for his own personal selection of cheeses. So just getting to talk to him about Key just starting up and, mm. and his trials and tribulations going through that. Neil Perry would always come in. So just talking to him about quality of produce, et cetera. And that was yeah. when Wagyu from Blackmore's was just so do starting. You, do you think you've got, obviously you need a particular type of brain yeah. to retain information. Obviously you've got to be passionate about what you do. Yeah. What is that? What are the what are the characteristics of a good cheesemonger, do you reckon? I'll preface this by saying that when I was an apprentice, we used to have back of the Connaught days in London, you know, you'd be 30 cheeses on the cheese board and trying yeah. to learn this rotating they weren't 30 of the same cheeses. They would change all the time. Yeah. And trying to learn hundreds of cheeses, yeah. retaining that information, yeah. I'm not good at. I'm more flighty and creative and somebody else knows that. Yeah. What type of brain is it? You, Obviously yours, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Some people Success might. and failure yeah. based on. Yeah. So basically, yeah, definitely that creativity. You need to have creativity. Um, you need to have a, an understanding of your flavor profile and your, and your tongue. Like you need to know what things taste like and where they hit your tongue. Um, you need to know the difference between, I guess, the core taste receptors and, and how things marry well on the palate. So knowing the way to flavor. So if, for example, like pairing something with tomatoes and the acid, you need something with a little bit of fat where that acid would cut through. So the traditional pairing is always mozzarella or dried ricotta. You need to know the basics about culture and how people have cheese. So in England, a lot of the territorial cheeses were had as sustenance. You know, you could carry, if you were a miner, uh, you could carry a, a, a chunk of Lancashire in your pocket all day. Hard but full fat cheese, is yeah, that what you're saying? 100%. And, yeah. and then know that flavour profile where it's just at the front of the palate where it's acid, a little bit of tang at the back and it's a toothsome texture. It's not heavy like a Gouda 
where it's rich caramel and you can only have say 20 grams without with, before feeling full and same with you know i'll the, challenge that by the way yeah. i think i can <laughs> uh, 20 grams and, and brie like having brie where you're just <clears> like wow i can i can't eat half a kilo of that in one sitting but with like lincolnshire uh, with Red Leicester, et cetera, you can graze on that all day without ever yeah. feeling like you've, you've had too much. So as a cheesemonger, is it almost like a sommelier, so yeah. like a wine waiter? So you 100%. can you characterise, well, characterise is probably the wrong word, can you eat a cheese, if you were blindfolded, can you pick certain things out of that? Yeah, 100%. And what are you looking for, for example, um, on a certain style of cheese? I mean, you can pick one like a, I don't know, hard cheese? Yeah, hard like cheese. Like those cheddars or? You're looking for what the place in Vermont, Jasper Hill Cellars calls the deliciousness factor. It's almost like a spider graph in your mind of texture, like what do you love about that cheese? Is it crumbly? Is it melt in the mouth? Is it uh, unctuous? Is it toothsome where it just coats your teeth? Uh, so that's one part of the spider graph. The other part is satisfaction. So you don't want bitterness. Um, you know, we've been led for many years to believe in our country that bite and sharp are great, but that was a standardized cheddar that was made you know, when farms had to stop producing what they were making to make that one standardized cheese for the whole population, they marketed things like bitey, club, all those things. So you don't want that in a hard cheese. You want full mouth fill. So when you're, you're grazing on that cheese, as you're masticating it through your mouth, so as you're chewing and pushing it with your tongue to other, all parts of your mouth, you're picking up sweet, salty, savory, a little bit of umami, fat is now a flavor acid so you look for those things so you then want to know the longevity of the the taste in your mouth how long has it lingered in your palate is it a short one minute taste and then it goes or does it linger like an alpine cheese from switzerland where it can go on for about about a half an hour to one hour where you just still taste that nuttiness and you're like i still want more and does it develop saliva in your palate like things like camembert uh the rind of the camembert and and its unctuous texture as it just oozes when you taste that it really gets your your palate going like you start getting saliva. So you need something crisp like an apple or a really good Chardonnay, say from Tasmania, to cut through that or else you keep having it. You can't talk, you can't eat anymore because your mouth is just saliva mm. and you end up getting a napkin to wipe your mouth because you're dri dribbling and everyone's like, what the <laughs> hell's going on with this guy? Um, but, yeah, it's these are the things you look for and it all comes back down to that, that deliciousness factor. So as a cheese affineur or cheese maturer when you when you look at the, the deliciousness factor you work with the cheese maker and the farmer so you you work backwards so you do a flavor profile of the um the finished product you also do a flavor profile of the cheese at one day old at one week old at one month however long it takes for that cheese to mature and you give that information that spider graph back to the the cheese maker who will then look at it and go okay my ph maybe lingered a little bit too long there I might have oversalted that or I didn't use enough of this particular cheese culture. And then they analyze that and then they go back to the farmer and say, hey, this is the DNA of the milk that we analyzed. This is the delicious fact that the affineur wanted. This is what we did to that cheese that day. This was a recipe we used to make that cheese. You know, where were your cows grazing or where were your sheep or goats grazing on that particular part of the farm? You know, what are you using to supplement their diet? Are you doing a rotation of your fields or are they grazing the same thing over and over again? And so you look at the cleanliness and the DNA of your milk and and that's what cheese affinage is. It's it's linking all three things. So the farmer, And every step in the process. I mean, I'm an amateur cheesemaker. I mean, yes. really, when you talk about bitterness. You're better than me. <laughs> <laughs> remember when we talked about bitterness and I made yeah. a... Um, 
I made a Comte style cheese yeah. and it was just, I just, the aging, I think I've been on all day. I think I went to Europe and I had yeah. to leave it. That's right. And so it just developed all these bitter yeah. overtones. And I forced myself to eat it, but it was a, yeah. it was a struggle. But I'd made the thing and I'd matured yeah. it for like a year. Well, that, so my affinage, my maturation was shocking. Yeah. I know we're going down the rabbit hole a little bit for the consumer, but it was, it's an interesting process and every, you realise that everything along the way from the milk, you know, and I'm talking when you get the milk, yeah. you, know, you get a great quality milk and then yeah. you've got to make it into something that yeah. everything affects yeah. the end result, and even before it ends up in the cellar, right? And there are so many variables, like one particular variable that I, I'd studied on my, my Churchill Fellowship with, with Jasper Hill was how clean your dairy was because cows in particular, uh, whatever they're breathing half an hour before they're milking is absorbed into their milk. So if you've got a very unclean dairy parlor as you're milking the cows and they're smelling their own yeah. poo, yeah. that flavor comes through your milk. When you do a, an analysis of your milk and you do a tasting. You can taste, taste that kind of bovine. Yeah. People talk about that sometimes when they say, oh, the milk, I can't drink milk because yeah, it tastes like animal. cow. Yeah. 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 And that's and- <laughs> the big part of like people's being scared of goat's milk is that thing through their history of consuming goat's milk, they've had it where it's very bovine, like where it's, yeah. you, you know, oh, take the hoofs, taste, it, taste the hoofs on it. Exactly. Or, yeah, I'm trying to be nice about Sorry it. Sorry about that. That's all right. <laughs> so how do you relate all that kind of complication yeah. to the average, you know, person who buys most of their cheese at the supermarket and in yeah. a wrapper? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Because it's, it's such a leap, isn't it? I mean, for so many years, and me included, I still buy yeah. a block of multi-purpose cheese that ends up in... I don't know, like in everyday cooking, like a cheese yeah. sauce or something, and I might finish it with something nice, but if I haven't got it, there's always something there. You know, we've all got kids, and so, you know, th- that's the thing that they're chopping a hunk, hunk off. You know, when I ca- caught my daughter years ago, you know, like yeah. I'd come to your shop, buy, I don't know, a $100 a kilo yeah. block of cheese, yeah. and between her and her friends, they smashed it. And I yeah. go, do you know what you just ate? And yeah. they go, yeah, cheese. I go, ah! <laughs> Take the other block. How do you, how, so how do you relate that to what yeah. most people are consuming? You've got to be very careful because you don't want it to be too elitist. So our mantra at Maker and Munger is taste first. So we want to sell cheese based on its flavor and then you tell the story of the cheese. So when we, every day being in that market, like you've got such diverse offerings from the delis through to us. So the way we try and capture a customer from that deli hall to come to Maker and Munger and purchase something delicious you don't want to be too intimidating. Um, so we never come across as being too elitist or too much education. We come across as as fun. You come to our counter and you're going to have a fun, engaging conversation with the cheesemonger behind the counter. And, and we offer you a tasting of something we have just opened or something that's ripe and ready to go. And then we work back from there. So we we ask engaging questions like, you know, are you looking at cheese for lunch or for dinner? Is it before dinner or after dinner? And then that gives us what we call like window shopping in our minds. We won't show you the whole 60 cheeses because you're going to get intimidated, we're going to get intimidated and, and it ends up being a lost sale and a lost experience for the customer. So it's about finding out what the person wants or what they need and then showing them what they want. So um, like myself at home, I'll always have that basic everyday cheddar at home for cooking too. If I'm needing to make a bechamel for mm. mac and cheese, etc., I'll I'll use a, a standard cheddar. But then I'd like you all to finish it off with something incredibly delicious on top, whether it be Comte, Beaufort, or a proper cloth-bound cheddar. And and you want people to know that experiencing these amazing cheeses in small amounts is a great way to live. Like a lot of people are going overseas. They're going to France, they're going to Paris and Lyon and, and going to the 
the re- remarkable markets and fromageries over there and tasting fantastic cheeses and and going, why can't I get that over here? Well, you can. You can get some pasteurized versions of those cheeses and, you know, going to a dedicated fromagerie and becoming great friends with the cheesemongers there and, and getting to know the, that person and what they love. And and basically, I've always sold cheeses I love. Like of all the 60 cheeses we have at Maker and Munger, I'd take any one of those home. And our mantra at the shop is if it's not good enough for you, then it's definitely not good enough for your customer. So mm. um, we, we love that. Like everybody at the shop's got their own favorite cheese. Like some people love wash rinds and they can easily sell a wash rind. Some love blues. They can easily sell blue cheeses. I love my Alpine so I can sell them all day because mm. each flavor is just remarkable. You, like something from St. Gallen on the eastern side of Switzerland is so different from something in Fribourg on the western side. Like similar recipe but very different cows, very different Alpine um, pastures and that all reflects in the beauty of the milk that terroir yeah. comes to. And just so you know, I mean, I tend to buy the same things when I go, but you can actually sell me anything. I'll just (laughs) tell you that. I love making this series, and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message, because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. To get somebody off a standard block of cheddar that they buy every week, what would you tease, what would you tease them into yeah. to illustrate the next step up into the world, the glorious world of you know, artisan cheese? Yeah, so the go-to is always Comte. Because Comte, it's such a universal flavor and everybody loves it and you can have it at any time of the day. So you give them a taste of that and if it's not strong enough for them, then you go, okay, they want, say, a traditional cheddar. And a traditional cheddar is always a shock to someone's system who grows up on block cheddar Yeah. because the traditional cheddar, it won't have that bite or the sharpness at the back of the palate. It'll have a really clean and vibrant flavor at the front of the palate, like it'll have a nice acid and then you get that sort of lactic sweetness of the milk as well. And then those earthy flavors of the the maturation room and what the cows are grazing. So you get hints of asparagus, hay, et cetera. And it's just a shock to someone's system. They're like, this cheese has just been dropped. Something's like, no, no, it hasn't been dropped in a farm. It's it's the the terroir of the cheese. It's what the, the cows have been grazing. It's the aromas of their maturation room because particularly in Somerset where they mature their cheeses at Montgomery's, at Westcombe and at Keynes, it's part of their dairy. And so when you go there, and you, you take a big breath as you get out of the car, it smells like you're breathing the cheese in back in Melbourne at the cheese counter. It's like, wow, okay, now I know where that aroma of that cheese comes from. It's being a cloth-bound cheddar, it, its rind is like a sponge. It's absorbing all those microorganisms in the atmosphere around it. And, and so you engage the person with that. You tell them this is why it tastes like this. So you give them an education about the experience. You don't tell them the romance of the cheese. You tell them just basically this is why you're tasting those things and this is mm. how incredible it works. Like, I prefer the romance of the cheese. Same, but <laughs> when you tell that same story over and over again, you, you personally are like, I don't want to hear that anymore. Um, <laughs> like if I hear one more story about Napoleon and his favourite cheese, like every cheese in France is is Napoleon's favourite yeah, cheese, whether it's the, the Valencia, which has had the pyramid top cut off, so it's got that flat top because he failed on his conquest to Egypt or Mimolette. The reason why Mimolette is so hard and orange 
is because he used it as cannonballs on these <laughs> tours. So there's all those stories and they're great when you first come into the cheese world and you, you start telling them to a customer, but then you're like, no, I want to know why yeah. it tastes Who like cares that. about a little short guy that kept losing to the British? <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry, did I say that? I think I did. Um, <laughs> but, you know, for example, I'll give you an example. My yeah. mum, I mean, you know, I'm from England originally, mum still lives in the UK. Yeah. And um, it took her to come to Australia for the first time to have a Montgomery's or a Quicks or, yeah, you know, which is traditional Somerset cheddar. Yeah. And she didn't really like it because of all those reasons, because yeah. she was like, it tastes kind of a bit earthy and musty and yeah. like, what's with the big thick rind and that's penetrating the cheese and all the rest of it. I go, yeah, but that's the deliciousness. Yeah. That's the, you know, and totally different from, you know, the everyday cheddar that you buy, you yeah. know, wrapped in plastic. It's, it's, it's exactly the same with blue cheese. Like you either grew up as a Blue Costello fan or a Danish Blue fan. We didn't have things like Rockfort or Stilton until the early 2000s. And, mm. and you know, Will Studd played a big part in bringing those things over. So before yeah. him or and before F. Mayer Imports in Sydney as well, who were also the first ones to bring those things in, we all grew Like I grew up on Blue Costello tongue and tomato sandwiches for school lunch. I loved it. Provolone and mozzarella and sauce. I mean, everyone hated me at lunchtime, but I... Absolutely mm. loved eating those things. So tell me, you, you still go a cheeky little bit of uh, Blue Costello? Blue Costello, oh, yeah. Yeah, see, it's uh, part of the it's part a, of the food memory, isn't it? Sauce like making that and just like whipping that with a little bit of cognac and and shallots and onto a steak uh, is just stunning. Yeah. Absolutely. Stunning. See, as a chef, you know, I'd, I'd incorporate different cheeses. See, see a, a yeah. beautiful cheese like a Roquefort, and depending where it, you know what it is, etc., is that. You got to use that ingredient carefully. So you know, if you're making a you know a I don't know a blue cheese sauce, a gorgonzola sauce, or whatever, you just got to yeah. pick what works and gives you yeah. taste and texture at the end. And yeah. for me, that that range of cheese then can be chalk and cheese. Do you yeah. know what I mean? I can choose cheap and I can choose expensive. But yeah. much like a good olive oil, the expensive stuff is always to finish in yeah. my in my mind. Yeah. Whether is that right or wrong? No, I agree. I agree entirely. Like when we we do our mac and cheese at the shop, we we do just a standard cheddar uh, through the bechamel. And then we're finishing up with a, a, a raw milk gouda on, on top to really mm. bring out the flavor because the, the standardized cheddars, they're great for texture. Like their pH balance when it comes to melting is impeccable. There'll never be a, a fat and um, protein separation. So, you know, when you're using some cheese and you grill, you try to grill a toasty at home and you get that big lump of like hard cheese and then it's all this clear liquid everywhere and you're like, oh, it's oily. It's like, no, no, that's the fat that's left. That's all the flavor that's left the cheese and all you're left is with the protein and, yeah. you know, due to, you know, being a pH deficient cheese. So. Yeah, it becomes rubbery. Yeah. So really you should be dipping your bread in the oil and <laughs> chucking the sandwich with exactly. a bit of chunk of protein <laughs> yeah. on it. Is that what you're saying? 100%. Listen to this, people. This is important. These are important food tips. It's a bit yeah. like roasting a chicken. Yeah. And then just going for the fat and the gooey stuff on oh, the bottom. Forget the, the chicken. And the skin. Oh, God. If I'm roasting a chicken You know, it's the drippy. No one in my family understands or knows that actually there's lots of drippy juices that go all sticky oh, in the bottom of a pan because the they've never seen them because I eat them. That's the best. So they go, what are you talking about? Why does the gravy taste not so good? I said, because I just ate all the flavor. Yeah. Tell us about that toasty shop at the at the market because that has yeah. taken the market by storm and we need to yeah. we need to talk about the flaming reuben or the yeah you know so the all-american basically when i started in september uh 2015 the market was very strict in what i could and couldn't do so due to the fact that there were cheese shops in the deli uh hall we were weren't allowed to sell cheese just yet he was trying to ease us in without creating too much of a yeah. uh, a fire in in that in was that, that a problem because you've got there's a whole deli section in uh in Paran Market, how many traders would there be? Got 20, 25? 
Oh, maybe not that many. There's six, I think six deli selling I'm shares. counting them as I'm going down, yeah. So yeah. you've got a lot of traders that are in a very particular area of the market yeah. that all would essentially do or thought mm-hmm. maybe you were going to do what they did. Yeah. But that's a very different product, right? Yeah. Um, did you have troubles? Yeah, I ended up going to uh, court with one of them to get a, um, a restraining order. He, uh, the first day we opened, he he came to our counter and, and pulled out a knife. Um, Are you serious? A, that was a remarkable experience. It was like, hello, welcome to... <laughs> <laughs> so that's market mafia that people have heard about yeah. that they thought went on in the 60s. No. But uh, it's still going on. Yeah. like um, Knowing you, that would have been so intimidating. It how was. The, how the hell do you stand up to that? That previous management of the, the market back then, they, they failed me. There's clauses in our lease where you can be dismissed for that type of behavior. Mm. And, and that gentleman, he didn't want to go down that path. He wanted the path to least resistance. And he said, well, if you want to deal with this, you need to go through the, the legal system. And having to, to be interviewed by police officers, so police officers come into my little shop, which was just a cart back mm. then. Everybody in the marketplace looks at you like, what's going on? And then because we had to go through the police, you know, the old school uh, deli owners, et cetera, caught us a snitch. Mm. You know, and then you had that and then, you had customers going, oh, you know, they're a troublemaker there. I better avoid that shop. And But you're uh, a guy with a cheese cart. Yeah. and Against and, established traders that have been there for And years. all I was doing was Swiss raclette, all American, <laughs> and tomato soup until someone who does soup in the market, I won't tell you who they are because they're still there, came over and said, what are you doing soup? I do soup. You're not allowed to do soup. And I thought, yeah. It's for dipping the toasties in. Like it's all it was. So one thing I did learn at Jasper Hill or one of the great things was uh, tide rises or ships. So I played along and I said, you know, we can make it work. We're just going to do a dedicated cheese shop when we're allowed to. But in the meantime, I'm going to use everybody around me, their produce. So the onions, et cetera, they came from <laughs> Damien Pike for our toasties. Mm. I don't need to because I'm paying a premium. Mm. I could go to the wholesale market myself, but I love supporting him and he's been a great mentor. And of course, Gary's Meats, he'd be silly not to mm. engage in in working with them and mm. you know we developed with it's hard him. to ignore the best ham in the oh, business 100 right? like i'll talk about that ham in a second but before that <laughs> i'm still eating my ham yeah. just so you know from christmas unreal like <laughs> the the pastrami he'd never made any of those type of small goods in his life and when we came along and said i want to make a reuben because i went to cat's deli and in new york and and every food product that maker among is an ode to a, a place I've been, like mm. the All-American is an, an ode to Jasper Hill. So we use mm. their cheddar and I wanted to create the flavor of their their raw milk products in a toasty. And so we use their product and the fondue, of course, was my trips to Switzerland. The pimento was getting very drunk one night in New York with all the cheese people and and having a pimento dip in the morning for breakfast. I'm like, wow, I want to make a toasty out of that. <laughs> um, and, and so the Reuben was, I wanted to let everybody experience what it's like to have a fascinating product like like when you yeah. go to Cat's Deli. So, so essentially what, you know, it's the old adage of what goes around comes around. So yeah. by supporting the other traders in the market, and you've got yeah. some henchmen there that really yeah. underpin that whole establishment. Yeah, 100%. You, like, you get support. I mean, I love the fact that there's lots of different qualities because yeah. in the end, yeah. it's like choosing to whether you sh- do your big shops at the supermarket or whether yeah. you go to a local producer or a yeah. farmer's market or a market. You make your choices. Yeah. I was One of the things I was going to ask is yeah. 
even storing cheese for myself, if I buy a well-matured cheese yes. and then trying to pace myself so I get it eaten before it deteriorates yeah. is always a challenge. And I think most people actually don't know yeah. whether a cheese is good or whether it's not. So any quick tips on... Yeah, yeah. Because so cheese... I'll do this little thing. It's yeah. called Gary's Tips and Tricks. Yeah. So it could be Gary's Tips and Tricks, but they're Anthony's How to Store Your Cheese. Yeah, because the funny thing is <laughs> cheese, you know, it's, it's very simple. Like Cheese doesn't go off. It, it just oxidizes. So... When you're buying it from a, um, a retailer, you might get it at about 100% flavor or 95% flavor, and then it gradually oxidizes. So the best way to keep your cheese, if you want to get your cheese geek on, um, you buy a Tupperware container, punch some holes into the lid, uh, put a damp chuck, so those so damp uh, blue cloth, yep. uh, not too wet, just damp. Buy a sushi mat from a $2 shop, put that over that damp mat, and then keep your cheeses wrapped in um, baking paper. If you don't go to a specialist cheese shop that sells cheese paper, uh, wrap it in baking paper and then put the lid on and keep it in your vegetable crisper and you get temperature of about six to eight degrees and about 80% humidity. So they're the the great parameters for storing cheese, anything above 80% relative humidity. So you never use your, your dairy compartment of your fridge. That's for butter. That's what needs mm. dryness. You use your vegetable crisper and the more vegetables you got in there, the more moisture, which means the more uh, benefit it is for your cheese because cheeses, even when they're cut, they're still living organisms. They need to breathe. They need to survive. If you wrap it in glad wrap, all you're doing is sweating the cheese and it just reabsorbs that sweat and you're losing flavor. The texture becomes quite mushy as well. Yeah. So, so you're yeah. suffocating it as well, exactly. right? Exactly. Like blue cheese, keep that in foil because blue cheese loves oxidization because blue vein is a, an oxidizing mold. So it needs as much oxidization as it can. So that one gets foil wrapped and that can be anywhere in your fridge where it's nice and cold so you can stop that process. So it's like pausing a, a TV show um, on, on Netflix. So that's what you're doing with blue. Um, but with the other cheeses, baking paper or cheese paper in your little compartment. If you don't want to make the compartment, just baking paper in a paper bag in your vegetable crisper. And most cheeses, once if they're freshly cut and not pre-cut and bought, they can last anywhere from three, three weeks to four weeks. And every now and then when you open your cheese, you'll notice like a white film on the faces of the cheese or a little bit of a blue mold. That's just oxidizing mold. So just with a flat blade knife, just shave it like you're shaving a, a face or shaving butter. And if it's a blue, like a light blue mold, just make a little incision and, and cut that out. If it's a black mold, definitely avoid that and throw yeah. out the cheese. Or if it's a red one, that's a uh, histamine infection. So throw that out. Um, but if it's a hard cheese and it's just a light blue or white mold, just shave that. That's just yeah. oxidization. Funny how the dangerous stuff is normally quite obvious. Yeah. You go, ooh, that yeah. doesn't look good. If it's fluoro, it's it's like, oh. <laughs> Chuck it away. It's a good tip. Yeah. I use those, um, you know, decor yeah, containers because they've got amazing. a little pop lid yeah. and then they just let a little bit of air in. All right, last question. Yes. What's what's next? What's next? Um, <laughs> yeah, we've, we're um, halfway through obtaining a liquor license there at Maker and Munger. Awesome. Uh, so we've got three big goals this Danger year. Danger so time. Liquor license to be able to do on, on um, premises drinking of Now you're really going to upset everybody. Just <laughs> <laughs> um, also, um, we've just obtained our importing licenses too. You know, with the raw milk laws always relaxing or being reviewed, I'd love to bring in small farms that people that I've gone overseas and met and made cheese at. I'd love to bring their cheeses over. And also distribution. We've got our little caddy. Um, during COVID, we were able to, uh, when they were increase that asset write-off, we, we picked up a little caddy. We've called it Monty after Montgomery's. Uh, <laughs> we're getting that cloud in our colors and we're going to do um, distribution and, and next day delivery for um, uh, people who want to order online. And we're negotiating with a um, cold chain logistics for next day delivery for interstate as well. Like we're getting heaps of tourists 
and they trust what we do. So rather than having to come to Melbourne to buy our cheese, I want them to have enough confidence to go onto our website, look at that and go, hey, I know that cheese. I'm going to order that and it's going to come the next day with um, Maker and Munger in Sydney. I love the fact that when we, we tried to draw, I tried to draw a circle around, don't get too complicated, don't yeah. go down the rabbit hole. I think we did all right. We did all right. we did okay. But if, if people want to come and visit you, Pran Market, yes. you're right in the middle. Like I say, you're the epicenter of the market. Yeah, look for the cheese neon sign. Yeah. So what do you do? Do you order the toasty first or do you order cheese first? No, order the cheese first. Order the cheese you're first. On empty right. stomach so you buy more. <laughs> Because once you have the toast, you're like, I don't think I can fit any more cheese in. I'm not going to buy any. <laughs> well, Anthony Femier, we could have talked a whole lot more, but I think what we've done is given people a little bit of cheese inspiration. They can pick up your book. But is that online or you can... Yeah, online on makerandmonger.com. Great. So and... jump on the website and then go down and, and talk a little bit of cheese yeah. at, the, at the counter and order a toasty. Yes. So here's my tips and tricks. And we've all talked about cheese, so we know that we're going to go to the market and we're going to buy some beautiful Comte or some cloth wrap cheddar. I mean, the world's your oyster, let's face it. So we get home, we're getting our toasty machine hot, we're making our sandwich, and we know the basics. But do we? Instead of slathering it in butter and putting it on the hot plate, do this instead. Mayonnaise, whole egg mayonnaise. It's the best. Half a tablespoon, if you're generous, spread it on pop it on the grill and then spread on another half a tablespoon on the other side and then close the lid and enjoy the sizzle. And when you open it up, super golden brown, crunchy, delicious. Toasties will never be the same. A Plate to Call Home is presented by me, Gary Megan, and produced by Dave Swalensky and audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.